What we're going to do this morning is take a few moments to reflect on the theme of resurrection, to consider what it means that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. And we're going to do this with the help of one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians. So uh, if you want to, uh, open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use one of the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through the first part of verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 10. Let me read the passage for us. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Holy Spirit, open the word to us. Point us to the one who is the word, Jesus himself. Jesus is present with us, and we can experience his resurrection power, and that is our prayer. Help us, Holy Spirit, to experience the resurrection power of Jesus, to not only know about the resurrection, to not only maybe believe it in our minds, but to actually experience it and to be drawn into it. We pray that you would do this for your glory, but also for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Joshua Swamidas is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and he writes this, I am a scientist. Still, on Easter, I celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead about 2,000 years ago. Dr. Ian Hutchinson is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he says this, I'm a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT, and I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I want to ask you this question as we enter into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. How can this be? Seriously, how can this be? How can two scientists from respected educational institutions in our country actually really honestly believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, let's allow them to answer that question, all right? Dr. Swamida says, faith in Jesus is reasonable and not without evidence. Dr. Hutchinson, the one from MIT, says, the historical evidence for the resurrection is as good as for almost any event of ancient history. There's a common word in both of their answers. Maybe you caught it. That word is evidence. Evidence. We could replace evidence with facts. And I wonder if that strikes you as odd. 
I wonder if that surprises you this morning, because you may think to yourself that the statement, Jesus is risen, is purely a theological statement. Now, don't get me wrong, it is that. When we claim, when we declare, when we proclaim that Jesus is raised from the dead, it certainly is a theological doctrinal statement that comes out of the Christian faith, out of the teaching of the Bible. But before it is a theological statement, it's actually a historical statement. It's a statement of evidence, a statement of fact. There is evidence. In other words, there are facts. But what about faith? What is the relationship between facts and faith when it comes to Christianity, and particularly the central reality, the central event in the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus? So what we're going to do uh, with the help of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is we're going to talk about both facts and faith, all right? That's what we're going to do, facts and faith. 1 Corinthians 15 is... One of the earliest writings uh, in the Christian movement in the New Testament to discuss the resurrection of Jesus. It would have been written about 25 years after the resurrection of Christ. And what Paul is doing here in this portion of the letter is he is recognizing the confusion that these followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth have. And the confusion is a confusion that we would have likely shared if we were in their shoes, and it's actually a confusion that we share even today. And that confusion really kind of centered in on the fact that they struggled to believe in resurrection. They doubted resurrection, particularly the Christian teaching that at the end of history, all those who are in Christ would be raised to victory with Jesus. This was hard for them to fathom, hard for them to believe. And so the Apostle Paul writes to address this. He writes to address this. And his starting point for this is to actually go back and establish the basis for this, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I point this out because I think it's really important for us this morning. As Paul is making the case for resurrection, he writes to an audience that he assumes, he anticipates, have doubts suspicion, and suspicions about the very possibility of resurrection. He recognized that it was difficult for his audience to believe this. I think sometimes we have a habit of thinking that people in ancient times, people back then, they were maybe more gullible. It was easier for them to believe uh, incredible claims such as the resurrection of Jesus. And so we can't really take their accounts into account because it was just easier for them to believe back then because they believed in all sorts of things. But that's actually not the case when you look at it in context. And you actually see this throughout the Gospels. It's all over the place. As Jesus spends his three years of ministry with the disciples, he is regularly basically preparing them for the fact that he is going to die and rise again. Now, they had no part of their worldview that was able to really interpret this and make sense of it and accept it. And so my guess is that in these teaching moments in which Jesus was teaching them, he was preparing them for what was going to happen, they didn't really know what to do with it. You know, maybe they interpreted it in different ways, 
but they didn't know what to do with it. How do we know that? Well, because in the actual gospel narratives, when Jesus does go to the cross and die, and when he rises again, they struggle to believe. Now, imagine this. Jesus begins to appear to them in the gospel narratives. He is present to them, present with them. And still, even in those moments, with Jesus physically present before their faces, they struggle to believe. Why? Because there is no room in their worldview for somebody coming back to life. Again, I point this out to show you, to help you to be aware of how we're not any different from them. They struggle to believe such claims as we struggle to believe them. And so we should be aware of what C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer and thinker, called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. In other words, we can kind of rub our noses at people in the past. We can kind of be snobs towards them and say, like I pointed out, oh, well, back then they believed all kinds of stuff. That's actually not the case. So I want to invite you, I want to encourage you as we come to this text to check our snobbery at the door, so to speak, all right? Can we, can we at least attempt to do that, to at least maybe try to be aware of the snobbery that we might have toward those in the past? But Paul, as he uh, begins in verse 3, he uses commonly recognized language for passing on a body of information that was received from others. And he begins this argument, and this is really what it is. It's an argument. He's making a case. He's building a case for the resurrection of Jesus so that they might then actually believe, well, if Jesus was really raised from the dead, then it's possible for us to be raised from the dead at the end of history. And Paul uses two technical terms that indicate how, Christians, how Christian traditions were passed on. Uh, he says, handed on to them what had been received. So, Hand received and then handed on. These are, are technical words as he's making his case. And his original audience would have recognized this. They would have understood what Paul was seeking to do. The story of the resurrection had been passed on by word of mouth. Paul is wanting to clarify the fact that he, this claim, this story of the resurrection did not originate with him. It was passed on to him. He received it. And he's now standing as a link between the resurrection and these followers of Jesus in Corinth. What are the facts that Paul presents? What are the facts? Well, in verses 3 through 5, we find four facts, four elements of the early Christian tradition. Number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The ending of that is key. He does it again when he mentions the resurrection. He says, in accordance with the scriptures. Paul is pointing out that this resurrection is part of a larger story. There's a larger context in play. These weren't things that just suddenly happened out of nowhere. These were things that were prophesied about, that they were talked about in the story that came before. But number one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, Christ was buried. Number three, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, that's actually a big theme throughout the biblical story of God doing significant stuff, significant things on third days. And then finally, the fourth fact, 
and he goes into this in more detail, is that he appeared. So Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. And as he begins to talk about these appearances, he's really bringing his argument to a close. It's really kind of the punchline that he wants these Corinthians to be struck by. And it's the fact that Jesus appeared to so many people, to so many. First, he appears to Cephas or, or Peter. Then he appears to the 12, then to more than 500 at one time. And then he gives us this detail, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Why does he include that line? Because he's basically saying that you can actually go talk to some of these people. Some of these people to whom Jesus actually physically appeared are still living, and you can go talk to them. But I'm actually more struck by how he includes that last detail. He's honest. He admits that some have died, some have passed away. And that little detail, maybe you don't feel the same way about it, but it's significant to me because if Paul is making this up, if he's fabricating it, why would he bother to include that detail? That He's willing to be honest. Many of these people are still alive. You could actually go, val- you could go verify the sources, but I'll be honest with you, some have passed away. Some have died. What we know is this. There's no historical doubt that a man named Jesus lived. There aren't really reputable scholars out there that would make this claim. And it's also without dispute that a group, a movement was launched soon after his death. And despite the apparent absurdity of this claim that he was raised from the dead and all of the vigorous attempts to persecute these uh, followers who are part of the movement essentially off the face of the earth, this, this group actually grew quicker than any other before or since. Soon the Roman Empire eventually becomes a Christian empire. It's declared to be so. Now, that, that's a, another issue uh, for another time. But what I want you to just see is how quickly the Christian movement uh, was launched and grew. The point is this. Something must have happened. Something that was unique. Something that was different in all of history. These are historical claims. You can disagree with the Apostle Paul's claims. You're certainly free to do that. But what I want you to realize is that Christianity is first rooted not in just merely theological claims. It's rooted in historical claims. And that's why later Paul says that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the Christian faith is meaningless. It's meaningless. We shouldn't try to play at Christianity. We shouldn't try to pretend to be Christian if this didn't actually happen. So that's how hardcore Paul is about this. Paul is saying, this is the uh, central reality of the Christian faith. I'm willing to stake my life on it, and I'm even willing to say that if it didn't happen, if it's not true, the Christian faith is meaningless, it's made up, walk away from it. Christopher Hitchens was no friend of Christianity. Uh, He was not a Christian. In fact, he was an atheist, but he once said this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. 
You know what I say to that? Amen. Amen. Because he recognizes that Christianity, is, now he disagreed with the claims, but he recognized that the claims are based on historical claims, historical realities that these Christians claimed. And Paul says that this, these events, this story is of first importance. The story of Jesus. That's how we could summarize these four facts that he presents. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Jesus appeared. It's the story of Jesus that Paul is presenting and rehearsing and reminding these followers of Jesus of. What about faith? How does faith come into play in all of this? Because you might get the impression that I'm downplaying faith, that I'm minimizing faith, that these are historical realities that we just have to um, try to see, and once we see them, then we become Christians. There, there's more to it than that. Faith is an important part of this. And as we now make the transition from talking about facts to faith, I think we have to go back to what Paul, um, the, the beginning of the case that he makes, this receiving and handing on. What he is handing on, what he's passing down, again, it's not something that he has claimed that originates with him. It's something that he has received. And at the end of these verses, he mentions God's grace to him. And I think there's a connection there, that Paul received the claims about these events surrounding Jesus and came to believe in the deeper message behind them because of God's grace operating in his life. We could say that God was revealing the truth behind these historical facts to him. And so in this way, facts and faith collide. They collide. And we see how this plays out in the lives of the early disciples. These early disciples eventually come to believe the facts as Jesus appears to them as they receive this message being handed down to them. They respond to it in faith. In other words, they basically look at the evidence. They look at the facts before them and say, I can't believe this. This is shocking. This is stunning. This is astonishing. My, this basically blows, explodes my worldview, but I have no choice but to believe because it's right here in front of me, and I believe that it's true. And I believe that Jesus didn't just simply die, but he died for my sins, that he didn't just simply rise again from the dead, but he rose again for me. And so we have this collision of facts and faith. And how does that get lived out? Well, they believed the facts in such a personal way. Their faith was so vibrant, so real, so on fire, we might say, that many of them were actually willing to give their lives for what they claimed. Now, as we look at history, as we review history, there have been plenty of movements, even the modern, in modern day, in our modern times, in which groups, certain groups arise, and they believe a message or, or claims that we would look at and say, those are utterly ridiculous, it's silly, and they may even give their lives for them. But this is in a different category, because as we review those movements throughout history, they're all eventually stamped out. The small group of followers... Maybe they all commit mass suicide or whatever it might be, but they disappear off the face of the earth, and the movement 
And the message that comes with the movement ceases, right? It comes to an end. But that was not the case with Christianity as we touched on. Christianity actually exploded. Even with people being around the Roman Empire that the folks could go to and say, wait a second, Paul's making these claims. Do you actually believe this? Are you on board with this? From there, the Christian movement blew up and it grew. And so many of the followers were willing to give their lives for what they believed. A collision between facts and faith. Here's what what strikes me about all of this. These earliest followers of Christ went from being doubters and deniers to confident proclaimers of Jesus pretty much overnight. Pretty much overnight. Willing to risk their lives for his mission. How? How can this be? I believe it's only the resurrection that can account for such dramatic change in the lives of people. Jesus actually came to them. He actually appeared to them, and he commissioned them. He invited them into his mission as participants and sent them out. And they so firmly and boldly believed these claims and this message that they were willing to do whatever it took to proclaim it and live in light of it. I think about what it must have been like for them. Like, think about those three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. As he's with the disciples, spending time with them, being a friend to them, investing in them. And they come to uh, believe that he is the Messiah, but a Messiah friend. There's deep relationship there. And then he dies. They witness it. They see him crucified. Imagine the emotion. And I think the emotion, it kind of emerges in two different categories. One being simply that their belief, they'd actually believe that he was the Messiah. And now in that moment, as they see him crucified, as they see his life come to an end, they have this doubt and they have this wonder, this reality actually in the moment that he's not the Messiah. I just invested three years, not not only of my time and energy, but of my innermost hopes in him, and now they have come crashing down. But then the other category, that of friendship. They witness their close friend die before their eyes in brutal fashion. So imagine then what it must have been like for them as Jesus began to appear before them. I I, I can't even fathom this. Can you imagine the emotion that came flooding into their hearts and minds? And it took time, as we saw. It wasn't like they instantaneously believed, oh, that's right, Jesus. You did teach us. You did prepare us for the fact that you were going to die and rise again. It didn't happen that way. It was a gradual process, like it is for us in life, as we encounter something that is surprising, that is hard to believe, something that... Um, touches on our, most, our innermost emotions and hopes. But here he is before them, and he begins to speak to them. He begins to point out the larger narrative of Scripture and how he has fulfilled it all in their midst. I can't imagine what that must have been like to realize throughout this process that he actually really is the Messiah. And not only that, but my friend... 
is here. He's present. And he changes my life forever. Before the resurrection, if you read the gospel narratives, the disciples were a small band of defeated people, cowardly followers. Jesus called to himself those who were on the bottom of the social scale for the most part. Not only those on the bottom of the social scale, but many of them were fishers, that's, uh, fishermen, those sorts of things. And throughout the gospel narratives, we see them regularly fail, like epically fail in big time moments. When it's time to step up onto the stage and demonstrate their faith, they fail flat on their faces. They deny Jesus. They question what he's saying. Um, they, their actions demonstrate something that is contrary to his, the values of his kingdom. But then something happened. Something changed. These cowards become bold proclaimers of Jesus and his message. Collision of facts and faith. As we look out at our world, we're reminded that it is often a dark and disturbing place. We encounter bombings of churches, black churches over the last couple months that barely get noted in the media. Um, churches bombed in Sri Lanka this morning, bombings of mosques in other places of the world. Where we, we encounter regularly how the world is a dangerous place. It's a dangerous, dangerous place. Shootings. Um, you know, it's that time of year for those of us who live in the city where it's that regular activity of firework or gunfire, having to make that decision as you hear it happening outside of your home. We're reminded of things like uh, addiction, diseases, police brutality, racism, hatred, hostility, division, a long list that is endless, right? The world is a dark and disturbing place. But it's not just like out there. I mean, this is, our, our, I, this is actually maybe our greatest danger, that we think the, the darkness and all the disturbing stuff is out there. But it's not just simply out there, it's in here, my heart, I won't speak for you, although I could, I'll just speak for myself, my heart is often a dark and disturbing place. In the past week, I've mistreated others in my thoughts, my words, my actions. I've judged others, held others to a higher standard than I hold myself to. I've had uh, thoughts that I shouldn't have had. I've said things that I shouldn't have said. You see, the, the, the dark and disturbing stuff is not just out there. It's in here. And as we are confronted with the stuff out there, it's always somebody else's problem, isn't it? Like, I mean, take these bombings, for example. Um, you know, the, the, wherever they may be, bombing of churches, why would somebody do that? We might say, oh, well, they're crazy. Well, that could be, but also because they believe that the problem is somewhere else. It's out there. That's how humanity functions. And it's so easy for us to overlook the fact that the human heart is a slippery slope. And at the heart of it is pride. That's how the Bible talks about 
the fundamental problem of humanity. Our fundamental problem is that of pride. Pride beginning with rebellion against God, that we believe that we are sufficient on our own, that we don't need to live according to God's design and intentions, and so we live how we want. But then also pride toward others. And so, yes, there are all kinds of problems out there. The world is a dark and disturbed place that needs saving. But our hearts, too, are dark and disturbed, and they need saving. We need the resurrection to be true. Not only that, we want the resurrection to be true. Now, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, whoa, what? wait a second, what? I never said that I want the resurrection to be true. I'm not talking about it on an intellectual level right now. I'm talking about it on an emotional level. You want the resurrection or at least something like it to be true. You want the possibility of salvation, of rescue, of hope to exist. And that is what is represented in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is unique in human history. Not only because of the facts and how the Christian movement uh, launched and gained momentum out of it, but because of the message behind it. That God, the creator, would come into the story to become like us, to become one of us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is to save a dark and disturbed world and to save dark and disturbed hearts. But God in the person of Jesus goes to the cross, and on the cross, he absorbs darkness. He he absorbs all that disturbs the world upon himself. And the message, the call, the proclamation is this, that as we put our hope in Jesus, not in our ability to try to save ourselves or the world around us, but as we put our hope in Jesus, we are saved. We are freed from a dark and disturbed disturbed heart and world. And it's the resurrection that actually validates the crucifixion and interprets it. Because without the Uh, Without the resurrection, Jesus just died like everyone dies. I mean, it it was brutal and all of that. But if there's no resurrection, Jesus is dead like anyone. But the resurrection validates his work on the cross. It highlights the fact that there was actually meaning in it, that Jesus overcame sin and death and darkness. Let's go back to Dr. Samadas and Dr. Hutchinson. Two different professors from two different educational institutions, remember? We, we heard from them that why did they, they come to believe that the Christian faith is true? They said it's because of the evidence, but they go on. Dr. Samadas says this, This event in first century Palestine is the cornerstone of everything. In the same way that trust-like faith in science is connected to evidence, so is the faith I have in the resurrection. You catch what's happening? He believes the evidence, but then he personally commits to it. There's a personal commitment. It's called faith. It's called trust. And we all have to place our faith, our trust in something. We all personally commit to something. For Dr. Samadas, he believes the facts of the resurrection, and he places his faith in it. 
Dr. Hutchinson from MIT says, I did not grow up in a home where I was taught to believe in the resurrection. I came to faith in Jesus when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge University and was baptized in the chapel of King's College on my 20th birthday. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are as compelling to me now as then. Compelling. Personal commitment, faith, trust. And that's where Paul ends. He says, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he actually persecuted the church. He persecuted followers of Jesus. And then his life was dramatically changed as he met the risen Jesus. The evidence was before him. The facts were there. And the evidence is before us, as Apostle Paul lays it out. Why is it so hard to believe in the resurrection? I want to leave us thinking about this question and a possible answer. Why is it so hard to believe in the resurrection? Well, on the one hand, as we've talked about, the claim of resurrection is just so mind-boggling and astonishing that it's just hard to believe, right? There's nothing in our experience, our life circumstances, that we can compare it to and say, oh, yeah, I, this happened, I believed in it, so I can believe in the resurrection. But I think it's more than that. I think it goes beyond that. I think that there is something at work in the human heart that blinds us to the truth of the message behind these events. And that is what the Bible calls sin, pride. If we believe the resurrection, if we believe that Jesus defeated death, that he's actually the Messiah, that he did for us what no one else can do, that what his, if these events in human history are utterly unique, then that means he is king, that he is Lord of our lives, and we must submit. I don't like to submit to anyone or anything. And you're the same way. And so there's a lot working against us here when it comes to the resurrection. There's just how hard it is to believe, but then also our pride. But the resurrection is beautiful. It's explosive. It has the power to break our pride. And so I want to invite you to consider the resurrection. Be willing to lay down your pride. Be willing to submit to Jesus because this is true. He really is the risen king. And he invites us, like he did those early disciples, to risk it all, to personally commit, to put our trust and our faith in him. But it's worth it because we have this high calling to reflect the resurrection in the world around us, in a world that is disturbed, in a world that is dark. We have the calling in our city to be a people that point to a greater reality, to something else, to point to the fact that facts and faith collide in the resurrection, and there is more that is possible than we might ever dare to dream and imagine because of Jesus rising from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we are really thankful for the Bible, for the biblical story, for the narrative that it tells about Jesus. Open our eyes to see Jesus, to see him in his life, to see him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his appearances. 
I pray that you would give us the ability to actually believe these things happened. And more than that, that you would give us, by your grace, as the Apostle Paul talked about, the ability to personally commit, to place our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and as our King. I pray for us as a church that you would help us in our city. The problems of our city are many. We don't have to look outside of our city to see how the world is dark and disturbed. And we don't want to pretend that we are saviors, that we can save our city. But we do pray that you would empower us, that you would give us, again, the ability to personally commit to your mission, to be people who can risk, to be people who are willing to risk because the resurrection is true. And we know that there is more resurrection to come as we await the end of the story, the end of history. Jesus, you're able to do these things, even though as we pray them, in many ways they seem inconceivable. You are the resurrected Lord, and so we pray that you would answer our prayers. Pray in your name, amen.